We'll make do, though. All right, in your uh, Bibles, you can turn to Luke's Gospel. We won't be in 2 Samuel, and we won't even be in Ephesians, so we'll have lots of leftovers to work on next year. Luke's Gospel is unusual in that it is not written directly by one of the disciples of Jesus, not somebody who traveled with Jesus or would have ever met Jesus physically in the body. Luke's Gospel was written by uh, a physician, uh, generally regarded as a Gentile. He traveled with Paul. And Luke's Gospel is based on the fact that he said, I've written my Gospel to set out or to present an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And by doing that, he investigated and he, he interviewed people and based upon people who had met Jesus and heard Jesus teach, he took all that information and put it in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He put it into a gospel that we know as Luke's gospel. Now Luke chapter 2 is um, the most famous nativity story in the church, uh, probably in the world, where it talks about in Luke chapter 2, now, now in a... Uh, a uh, decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or should be, um, there's another word for that, registered. Another, they all should be registered in order that they could be taxed. If the government wants to register you, it's because they're trying to figure out a way to squeeze a little bit more money out of you. But this really isn't supposed to be about politics, so I will move on. So that's in Luke chapter 2. It's a very famous story, You've undoubtedly, I would hope, heard that story. But really, when Luke writes his gospel, before he gets to Luke chapter, what we know as Luke chapter 2 in the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem and how his, his mother and, and her betrothed husband got there, before we get to that, we actually have to go back a page to Luke chapter 1 because there's also a very remarkable birth in Luke chapter 1. Now, it's, it's not as remarkable as... Uh, Mary giving birth to the Messiah, but it's pretty remarkable in its own right. And so Luke's gospel actually starts off with a story about John the Baptist's birth. John the Baptist is the best scholar's figure. Is He's a second cousin to Jesus. He's related. They're not first cousins, but they are related. And John the Baptist comes before, his birth comes before Jesus' birth. And that's a story he wants to tell because it is so remarkable. That's his father, Zechariah, holding him. So really, to tell John the Baptist's story, we have to back up just a little bit further yet to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. The Bible describes them as, this is a very nice way to say this, if I can find it, they were advanced in years. And then it says Elizabeth was barren. Advanced in years, and Elizabeth was barren. They undoubtedly, especially in a culture such as they lived, they undoubtedly hoped and prayed that they would be able to have children, but they were not able to have children. Now, Zechariah is a priest, and being a priest, uh, the priests had all these orders that would serve at the temple in Jerusalem according to their order. And everything that I'm reading, and if you've heard the story, you've probably heard this as well, is that priests typically would only serve in the temple once their lifetime, maybe twice, if uh, their lot came up 
uh, unusually high, you might serve twice. But for the most part, you served once. Now, he's not the high priest. There's only one high priest, and he serves so long as he's living. But the priests would go into the holy place every day, and they would keep make sure the lights are still lit, the candelabras are still lit, because the temple symbolized it's the light of the world, which really is just a foreshadowing of Jesus coming because he's the ultimate light of the world. And they would offer incense on the altar of incense, which was a golden altar inside the holy place, and the aroma coming up, which would have been a, a beautiful aroma, symbolized the prayers of God's people. So that was his job, and while he's doing that, his one time in his life, maybe a second, the Bible really doesn't specify, but while he's doing that, he struck mute. If you're a mute, it means you're unable to speak. And that story is told in Luke chapter 1. And I could tell you the story, but it turns out a journal has been discovered that, that uh, Zechariah actually wrote. Now, it seems like it comes from a sketchy book just based upon the title. It's called Crazy Book, a not-so-stuffy dictionary of biblical terms. But don't let it throw you. I'm pretty convinced this is probably pretty accurate. So in his journal, I picked out a couple entries that will tell the story of how Zechariah became mute. It goes like this. His entry on April 16th begins, Dear Journal... Yeah, I know I'm way too old to be keeping a journal, but I've been forced into it. I can't talk, so I'll have to write. Here's what happened. Today, I had the honor of going into the temple sanctuary and making the offering. So I'm here, and you won't believe this. The angel Gabriel appears, scares the bejeebers out of me. Well, Gabriel tells me that Elizabeth, my wife, is going to be pregnant and that we should name the kid John. I say, you're kidding, right? We've never had kids, and given our age, that ship has sailed. So Gabe says, unbeliever, and just for that, I'm going to make it so you can't talk. Just because I thought he was kidding. I was speechless. I still am. That's his entry. His second entry that I'll pick out is from August 31st, where he says, dear journal, still can't talk. Well, Elizabeth is 20 weeks along and showing. Her friends are teasing her about having to take prenatal vitamins with her geritol. On the other hand, the fact that her husband, that's me, hasn't been able to utter a word in over four months makes her the envy of all. She bumped into her distant cousin Mary. She's pregnant too. And her story is even more incredible than ours. One last entry. This, was, this one's from January 14th. Dear Journal, this will be my last entry. John was born today. I'm not sure that I'm ready to be a father, especially at my advanced age, but we prayed and prayed for years to have a child, and ready or not, he's here. I think I'm getting my voice back. In fact, I feel a prophecy coming on. I think I'm going to sing it. And so with that, in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 79, we have Zechariah's prophecy, which is often uh, titled his canticle or his song, after he's finally able to speak again. Now, I've got J.C. Ryle on there. J.C. Ryle was from the 19th century. If uh, you're somebody that's into classic books, 
uh, very devotionally minded books that are very insightful, um, very moving to, to the whole person, not just your mind, but also just to your soul and emotionally. J.C. Rowell is still a very popular author. J.C. Rowell was part of the, well, actually, let me back up. He was raised in a nominally Christian home, uh, but he experienced conversion when he was at Oxford. And initially, after conversion and after graduating from Oxford, he intended to, well, he, he did work for his father, who was a banker. His father owned a bank, and he worked for him for several years, but the bank wound up uh, going bankrupt. Kind of funny, now that I think about it. But anyway, right, so uh, he wasn't sure what exactly to do. He, he wanted to pursue a career in, in parliament, in politics, but it turns out he, he desired and he believed that God had called him to be a, a pastor, a minister. And so that's what he went in, into. And initially, his, um, his means were very meager, and he was not well known. But when the invention of the railway came along, and he was able to travel more, he became more and more popular, and the gift that he had to be able to share scripture with people really just seemed to blossom so that many of his books are still widely read and in print today. He's got some thoughts on the Gospels, and these are, I'm relying the main points from J.C. Ryle, so I wanted to give credit where credit is due. And when we read these verses, one of the questions he asks is what is emphasized in what Zechariah says, or prophesies, or sings. What is emphasized? So I'm going to read through, this is from the English Standard Version, and kind of pay attention to what is emphasized, and you can pick out what you think J.C. Ryle picked out for himself. It starts off like this. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's Zechariah's prophecy. Now, the few points, he makes three points, I believe, at least I've got three on the screen, they all come from J.C. Ryle. The first thing that he would say is noteworthy is the thankfulness and praise that issues forth from what Zechariah has to say, which kind of springs from his, his faith in Messiah will actually come. Uh, Zechariah hasn't spoken for nine months. When his tongue is finally loosed and he's able to speak, he bursts forth with praise and thanksgiving to God for what God has done. Uh, his praise sounds like a letter that Paul would write. 
Because the first words he, he sings or says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And then in Ephesians, when Paul writes that letter, which is a circular letter, and he introduces himself, and uh, he's writing to a group of people. After, after the brief introduction in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the Lord God our Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It sounds like a, a Pauline epistle. Because he's filled with praise initially. And he's praising God going back to the earliest prophetic promise that's ever recorded in Scripture. It's in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve are called on the carpet, called to, to an account before the Lord God for disobeying the one command that they had been given. And the Lord pronounces a curse upon the serpent. And he talks about there will be enmity or hostility between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. But he talks about the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. And the serpent's seed will bruise the woman's seed's heel. A reference to the cross, to the, uh, to the suffering of Messiah. But it's a promise that things will be reversed. It's a promise that things will be fixed. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And Zechariah's holding on to that promise in spite of 400 years of no new words from God. That's not the only promise in the Old Testament. There are lots of types and shadows and promises in the Old Testament. One after the other after the other. But I can't imagine living in a, in a church where we wouldn't have God's word, where every person can carry their own copy and read it. At your leisure, but at your pleasure, and recognizing it is far more priceless than what we give it credit for. And the Zechariah is hanging on to the few promises he hears as he ministers among all the other priests, as he goes to the temple to worship even when he's not serving. That's what he cherishes most of all, so much so that he's still looking forward to Messiah's coming, though there's not been any real indication that he's coming anytime soon. Until this incident when he's in the temple and Gabriel meets him. The second thing that's emphasized is God's faithfulness. That is his fulfillment of his own word. That's pretty evident. That's pretty emphasized. Such as in verse 70, it says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And in verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And then again, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What's, what uh, Zechariah is emphasizing in his praise is that God has been promising this. Zechariah hasn't forgotten it. But everything that's happening isn't a new development or technically an unforeseen development. It's not like God is changing uh, plans or changing strategies. This has been what he's promised from of old. It just took a long time. So what is emphasized in all of this is God's faithfulness, the fulfillment of his promise. And at this point, when Zechariah is, is singing this, all that we have is his son being born, who is the forerunner to the Messiah. That's all we have. Uh, Jesus won't even be born for another three months, roughly, give or take a little bit. All we have is the birth of his own child. And yet he talks about God has raised up a horn of salvation. 
raised up a horn of salvation. He also says he has redeemed his people. All we have is, a, is the John being born. Jesus will be born in three months. You've got two babies, very helpless babies, that require someone to care for all of their needs. And yet he talks about God raising up a horn of salvation and redeeming his people. Well, I can assure you, redemption wasn't accomplished only because a baby was born. That baby, Jesus, had to live a certain life. And he had to die a certain death. And he had to be resurrected on the third day. All that had to take place for this redemption to take place. But in seeing a part of the fulfillment... Zechariah is able to praise God for, as if the whole thing is already accomplished. And that is certainly a message for the church, isn't it? Though we haven't seen Christ come back in power and glory, we have not seen every knee bow and every tongue confess. I see a culture out there that cares less about the gospel and about absolute truth. I just read uh, this week, and I really am exposed to precious little news. I get little snippets here and there, but uh, the Speaker of the House, I, he was criticized by somebody uh, as uh, a very dangerous fundamentalist because he believes the Bible uh, literally. He believes what the Bible says is actually true. He believes, in his case, he believes in a young earth. And this other person was saying that the Speaker of the House is a dangerous person to our culture and society because it is so oppressive to our new morality and our new values. Zechariah speaks as if it's already done. He's redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation. A horn uh, in scripture is used as, as an emblem of power and might and the ability to rule. Uh, it's taken partly from the animal kingdom. Uh, even little creatures that get eaten by lions, uh, you see them scrapping with their own horns uh, as to who's got, the, who's got the power, who's in control. It's, it's just a symbol of power. You read about the horn in Revelation. You read about the horn in Daniel, these prophecies. Because a horn speaks of an individual or an entity, uh, maybe a government that has power, that will rule. Zechariah, by faith, recognizes that God is raising up a horn of salvation. God is raising... God is accomplishing redemption in the birth of Messiah. Now let me, let me also say, I don't believe that, that um, people in the Old Testament largely, and people in the New Testament, Old and New Testament, both Testaments largely understood Messiah was going to die, be crucified, be rejected. Uh, I don't think they understood saying that it's not foretold in the Old Testament scriptures because it's amply foretold. They just couldn't imagine such a thing taking place. So that when Jesus actually did endure his suffering and was rejected and was beaten and crucified, nobody understood that. They thought it was over. And it's not until the resurrection they recognize and Jesus even opens the scriptures to them and says this is exactly what was written all along. You just missed it. You just missed it. So when Zechariah is talking about redeeming, I don't think he's thinking about somebody who's going to die on a cross to take away sins, though that's what is required. 
He just knows that God's people will be saved by the birth of this individual. How exactly that will take place, he doesn't know. He just knows what the end result will be. That is, we will experience salvation, freedom, deliverance, liberty. And he's praising and thanking God for that. J.C. Ryle says, Consider the degree to which the Old Testament saints sped upon God's promises. They had, in comparison to us, so little light. And those promises were so precious. They so changed the way that they lived and worshipped because they believed what God said. And again, J.C. Rao then juxtaposes this to the church, that we, have, we live on the backside of Jesus having already come. We have a record, faith, four faithful records of the life that he lived in perfect righteousness, the death that he died as the perfect sacrifice, and then his resurrection from the grave as the perfect Lord. We have all of that at our disposal, and it's so easy to doubt it's so easy to waver, as from our vantage point, he tarries long before he completes everything that was written in the Old Testament prophets. And yet it's still to be true. J.C. Ryle then explains with a marvelous little explanation. He says, we have a seal on every promise which Zechariah never saw. We have the seal of Christ's blood to assure us that what God has promised God will perform. If God has promised that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, if God has promised that so far as the curse is found, it will be removed and this earth will be recreated back to its, say, original condition, completely uh, apart from any sin or curse of sin. It will all be changed. God has promised that. Zechariah had that promise too, but he didn't have the seal of Christ's blood. We have the seal of Christ's blood. He died to make those promises come true, to see those promises fulfilled, to see them become a reality. If his blood was shed, friend, you can take it to the bank. His blood was not shed in vain. Thirdly, the third thing that's emphasized is Zechariah has a clear, view, clear views of Christ's kingdom. He knew that by the birth of this child, the Messiah, that God's kingdom would rule and reign forever. Again, in spite of the fact that it doesn't always seem that way. In spite of the fact that there's an ebb and flow to nations and power and, and nations that uh, subscribe at least superficially to the, to the morality that's in Scripture. I mean, our country does have a Judeo-Christian ethic where Ten Commandments and Scripture verses are all over government buildings whether they were believers and right with God by faith in Christ or not, we at least had the benefit of that which we've lost, largely, though there are always God's remnant according to grace. There are always those that confess and believe Christ is Lord and Savior. But then J.C. Rao makes this statement, the foundation of this kingdom of Messiah was laid by the preaching of the gospel. But whether the kingdom is in its incomplete or complete state, the subjects of the kingdom are always of one character. And what he means by that is we don't have to wait for Christ to rule and reign in righteousness because he's come with the angels of heaven and the power and glory that he's prophesied to come with. Rather, we live in such a way that it says, uh, 
Zechariah says in verse 74, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. The church has the opportunity to serve him in, without fear in holiness and righteousness because we know one day that that day is coming. And we don't have to wait for it to arrive to start serving him without fear. We don't have to fear what men can do to us or governments can do to us. We don't have to uh, live to please ourselves. We can live in such a way that we exhibit the holiness and righteousness of Christ because by grace we've been saved. All of that is packed in to what Zechariah has to say. Now, we're doing really good on time. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to have to skip past a song that I didn't know where we would be at. We're going to move right past that and go to part two. Having considered Zechariah's prophecy as a whole, the second thing I want to do is draw attention to a single word in his prophecy. I think this will be something that uh, we will, it will kind of uh, come to its uh, fruition. Where I really want to go will be next week. This will set the stage, this single word. We've looked at the big prophecy, these big things that we should should uh, draw out or see emphasized in the prophecy. Now I want to pick out one word. And the one word is found in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That God visited his people. That's a very interesting word in scripture. Um, it's only found a handful of times in the New Testament, I think, I really forgot to check. I think it's 10 or 12 when I did check back in the day. 10 or 12. In the Old Testament, the word for God visiting uh, is used roughly 300 times. I'm going to give you the definition from the theological word book of the Old Testament. Uh, this is really kind of a standard for understanding words in the Old Testament. I think it was a two or three volume set. One of the contributors is Bruce Watke. Which, uh, which was an Old Testament link. I mean, he was a scholar by every definition of the term at Dallas Theological Seminary. I really assume he's passed away by now, but I don't know that to be the case. Uh, just a brilliant man, somebody that I would really not understand uh, if I were to have to sit through a college lecture with him. But uh, it defines the word in the Old Testament, this word that, you, that, that in, the, in uh, Luke's gospel is he visited his people it essentially has this definition. There's paragraphs, but this is the essence of it. The basic meaning is to exercise oversight over a subordinate, either in the form of inspecting or of taking action to cause a considerable change in the circumstances of the subordinate, either for the better or for the worse. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of how it's used in the Old Testament so you understand that. But uh, before I do that, what he's saying is when God visits you, that may be the best thing that ever happened, or it could be the thing you dread the most. His visit can be a visit with his grace and his mercy, or in the Old Testament, Jeremiah especially uses that word. God visits the nations and his own people with judgment. He visits them with fury. He visits them with wrath. And so the context determines, is this the kind of visit you want? Or is this the kind of visit you do not want? One of the first times it's used is found way back in Genesis. It's the story of Abraham and Sarah. 
And this is worth turning to, and I know everybody can figure out where the first book of the Bible is. It's the earliest one you have in whatever Bible you have. So go to Genesis in chapter 17. We're not going to read all three chapters, but we're going to pick out parts of those chapters so that you get the gist of the story. Genesis chapter 17, we have a visiting story. Abraham is termed the father of faith, both within Israel and within, uh, among Gentiles. By faith, we are Abraham's children. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, so we have this theme, uh, both in Luke's gospel and now all the way back in Genesis, these miraculous births, just teaching us something about uh, how salvation comes. When Abram was years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Skip down to verse... Chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham... As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now go over to chapter 18, verse 9. Chapter 18, verse 9. Abram is visited by the Lord and several messengers, uh, angelic messengers, 18 verse 9 says, They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then this wonderful theme, Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a theme in Old and New Testaments. When you doubt, when you doubt your own inabilities, your own proneness to wander, your own frailty, your own sin, when you doubt that on behalf of somewhere else or our country, the Lord reminds me over and over in the Old Testament, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Chapter 21. Chapter 21. And verse 1 reads, The Lord visited Sarah as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, at the appointed time. 
God will keep his promises at the appointed time and not a moment before and not a moment too late. I know if somebody were to ask me when is Christ coming back in power and glory, in a sense I can tell you exactly when he's coming back in power and glory. When the last of his sheep has been brought into the fold, he will not delay a second longer. But not all the sheep are in the fold. And so long as all the sheep are not in the fold, he will not come back. Because not one of his sheep will be lost. That's a great story of God visiting and causing a considerable change in circumstances. I imagine uh, Josh and Hannah have experienced a considerable change in their circumstances, but that would pale in comparison to what Abraham and, and Sarah experienced when he's 100 and she's 90. Now, people did live longer back then, but I'm going to guess 90's 90. Another example would be Joseph in the Old Testament. This is in Genesis chapter 50. Uh, I don't have time to tell this whole story, but the gist of it is Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Uh, by the providence of God, Joseph was raised up to be second in command of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And he was put over during a, a time of seven years of drought. He was put in charge of all the grain, so the people from all over the mid Middle Eastern world were coming to Joseph looking for food, because Egypt's really about the only place where you could get it. Joseph was reconciled to his brothers. He forgave his brothers, though his, his brothers found it hard to believe. But then in Genesis chapter 50, as uh, the book of Genesis closes, Joseph gives instructions to his brothers that when he dies, he wants his bones, when, the, when God takes the people out of Egypt, back to the promised land, I want my bones to go back because God will surely visit us in this place. And I want to be where God has promised his people, that is your land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so hundreds of years later, when Moses was raised up to bring the people out, they took Joseph's bones with them, because that was a promise they'd made, because Joseph, Joseph believed God's going to visit us. And when he does, I want to be where God has given us all these promises. That's told in Genesis chapter 50. He uses the word visit twice there. So then in Moses, with Moses, when he experiences the whole burning bush, the Lord says in Exodus chapter 3 and then in Exodus chapter 4, God has visited his people. He's heard their cries. He's heard their groaning. He knows their plight. It didn't seem like he knew. Because they'd been suffering as slaves for quite a long time. But God had heard their groanings and he knew their plight. And he was visiting them by sending them Moses and then his brother Aaron. And they would be the ones to deliver the people out of slavery into Egypt and take them back to the promised land. Because God was visiting. And when God visits, it causes a considerable change in the circumstances of the subordinate. Whether it's in judgment or whether it's in salvation. You've got a story in uh, the book of Ruth. Naomi uh, was the, the mother and, who was married and had two sons, and she went down to Moab because of a, a famine, and her husband died, and her two sons died. She had two daughter-in-laws, and she heard that God had visited his people back in, in Israel. And so she decided she would go back home, leave Moab where she had fled to, go back home because God had visited his people. And Ruth says, I want to go with you. 
And she tried to dissuade her. Actually, both daughter-in-laws said they wanted to go. One was dissuaded. Ruth said, no, where you go, I go. I want to live with you. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. I will die with you. And so Ruth went back because God had visited the people back in Israel. Another story very similar to that would be Hannah in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. She was barren as well. God blessed her with a child who we know as Samuel. But that's not really the incident where it's talked about her being visited by the Lord. After Samuel was weaned and old enough to be left at the temple because she pledged him back to the Lord, she left Samuel with uh, the priest there, Eli. He would be raised as a priest in Eli's household. But then it says the Lord visited Hannah and she had other sons and daughters. The Lord in his mercy visited and she had other sons and daughters. Now we take all this and we take it back to Bethlehem we take it back to Zechariah, God has visited his people. And in this sense, it's the most wonderful salvation because it's the basis of which every other, every other deliverance flows, flows ultimately out of this deliverance that Christ saves his people from their sin. There's a wonderful little passage in Matthew when Joseph is told what you will name the child that will be born to Mary. He says, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Not in their sins, from their sins. From the penalty of sin, from the desire of sin, and from the presence of sin. He will save his people from their sins. And all that begins to be set in motion by the Lord visiting his people, by sending the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, and by sending the Messiah himself. What wonderful promises. We'll, we'll build on this idea of God visiting his people next week. Are there any comments or questions from this week? And you don't even have to use a microphone. I should be able to hear you, though. Rick, and then Cindy. That there's a standard by which anybody will be judged. They don't want a standard by which anybody will be judged. Uh, I mean, what's popular in our culture is judges that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And if it's right to you, then it's right. Uh, we're, in a sense, living in that kind of a mindset, which is not good. But it ought to make the gospel clear. It ought to make our job very evident. Ryan, in a minute, but Cindy. No, I think when he says, he's speaking of his son, John. Right. John will be a prophet of the Most High. I think he's thinking of what Malachi said, which is the last book before the 400 years of silence. That, oh, yeah, I think, I think yeah, I think John, he's thinking uh, that our son, John, will be the prophet of the Most High, Mary's son. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I think so because... Her story is even more miraculous than his. I mean, it's one of those times where, like, you know, the old joke about, you know, you tell a story and, and a topper always has to top your story. I mean, Zachariah is thinking, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Mary comes to visit, and they're like, we have got a story you will never be able to top. And they tell the story about how, how uh, Elizabeth is going to have a child. And she's like, well, I hate to top you, but... <laughs> and she does. 
That's, yeah. But yeah, I think she's, the, I think Zechariah and Elizabeth thought John would be the forerunner to the Messiah. The Messiah would be the child born of Mary. Carrie. Oh, absolutely. He visited his people uh, in Jeremiah. And the temple was burned and razed and the walls were torn down and the people went into exile and they were killed by famine, by sword, and by plague. So yeah, he could visit you without redeeming you. Uh, all the world will be visited by God in some sense. Oh, they were his people. I mean, not all the world was, but the Is Israel and Judah, they were his people in some sense, but they were visited in judgment not in salvation. Though there was a remnant. Okay, Though there was a remnant. They were not completely destroyed. But as a whole, it was visiting in judgment. Somebody else? All right, we're going to sing one last song. It'll be a stereo song. It's, a, it's kind of a take on joy to the world. So there's a refrain towards at the end that uh, gets repeated for about a minute. I don't know. Just let it soak into you a little bit. Uh, Far as the curse is found, it's, it's, it's kind of a beautiful song. And, and the reason why I think joy to the world is so fitting is because joy to the world looks at all the promises being fulfilled. It looks to the last day where the far as the curse is found, it's been removed. It's looking at, at all of God's promises being fulfilled. And on some sense, it's like, but we're not there yet. But if Zechariah can, can imagine and sing about all of God's word will come to fulfillment because this child was just born, then we can sing the song as if it's already done, even though we're still just anticipating it. Let's everybody stand. Joy to the